If you are able, please stand for our reading of the Holy Word this morning. Turn to your Bibles to Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13, we'll begin reading in verse 1. Yahweh said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand Yahweh brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when, when Yahweh brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to Yahweh. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, It is because of what Yahweh did for me when I came out of Egypt, and it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of Yahweh may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand Yahweh has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When Yahweh brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to your fathers, and he shall give it to you, you shall set apart to Yahweh all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be Yahweh's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of a man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, What does this mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand Yahweh brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, Yahweh killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to Yahweh all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontless between your eyes, for by a strong hand Yahweh brought us out of Egypt. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of our word. Have his word to our hearts and minds this morning. Please be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. O Heavenly Father, please guide our minds by the person of your Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Give us the truths of your word. Allow the conviction of the Spirit to apply it to our lives. Let us bring glory unto you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, the title of this morning's message is Redeemed for what purpose? So I thought we would start, start off by trying to get our grasp around this, this word, redeemed. And so I want to pose a question. Have, have you ever redeemed something? And that can be a difficult question because if you don't really understand what it means to redeem something, it's hard to answer the question. So I've got 
two examples of, of what it means to redeem something. And I've categorized our, our, uh, our body of Christ here into the old and to the young. You fit in one category or the other. So first, for the old, let me give you something that you will smile at because I'm sure you will remember. And if you don't remember, praise God, you're part of the young. <laughs> and so with that, let me read to you from Wikipedia. See if you remember this. S&H Green Stamps was a line of trading stamps popular in the United States from 1896 until the late 1980s. They were distributed as part of a rewards program offered by the Sperry and Hutchinson Company, S&H, found founded in 1896 by Thomas Sperry and Shelley Bryan Hutchinson. During the 1960s, the company issued more stamps than the United States Postal Service. Wow and distributed 35 million catalogs a year. Customers received stamps at the checkout counter of supermarkets, department stores, and gasoline stations, among other re retailers, that could even be redeemed for products, excuse me, that could then be redeemed for products from their catalog. I can remember mom's stamps. I can remember where she kept them on top of the refrigerator so that the the boys didn't uh, destroy them or, or somehow lose them or whatever. And they had great value. And we, we were able to get some kind of neat stuff. And we would save up. And the more you saved up, the better the, the, the object was or whatever. And so as a family, we got to help mom share and, and be excited when she'd go to, to redeem these. So we, that's my understanding of what it means to redeem. Okay, now for the younger. I'm not so old as not to enjoy the use of apps on my phone. I love my Chick-fil-A app <laughs> because with my Chick-fil-A app, I earn rewards. It's, there's the exchange. There's the S&H stamps. I, learn, I earn these electronic rewards that they just assigned to me, and I get to. When I get to 3,600 uh, points, my wife and I go on a date night, and we have market salads for free. And so it's like, woohoo! So I, that, there's another example, a modern-day example of what it, what it means to redeem something. You purchase it by way of exchange, typically, is how it's happened. But it's certainly the idea of purchase. And we will see that to redeem something is to purchase it by, in, this, in our case today, by a substitutionary payment, by a payment of something else. We'll also look at the two purposes God intends for us as a result of our redemption. And as you take a look at your bulletin, you can see in the sermon outline that I've got there, the takeaway is, let us never forget the cost or the purpose of our redemption. And then we can see the two purposes there that are listed. One we'll talk about, and we're going to start off kind of uniquely. We're going to jump to verse 3 and deal with a life of holiness. And then we're going to go back and pick up verses 1 and 2 which were the, the forerunners that, that uh, really deal with verses 11 through 16, a life of devotion. So we have a life of holiness and a life of, a, of devotion. And, and we're going to look at what that actually means from two different perspectives. So with that, if you will look at your verse, um, I'm going to run us through there. You know, I, I've, I've, temp I've been considering my, in my style doing more paraphrasing. Every time I paraphrase, I get away with some of the cool stuff that's in the scriptures. I'm not good at it. And I don't want to leave you guys out of some of the truths that are in the scriptures, so you're stuck with me. We're going to just keep going line by line and verse by verse. I promise not to take on too much. 
Here we go. In verse 3, Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt. And notice, look what, how he categorizes. Look what he calls Egypt, that nation. He says, out of the house of slavery. We know he's contextualizing slavery. He's wanting slavery to be first and foremost in their minds as he's going to run into and talk more about this, this, this that has taken place as far as the, the Passover and the salvation that has occurred by God. Let me read it, start again. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand, Yahweh brought you out from this place. So we're going to be talking about the institutionalizing of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We talked about some of the components of it uh, earlier in, the cha in chapter 12 because it dealt with, you know, hey, you're supposed to have this unleavened bread, be ready to go. You're gonna, when I say go, you go. You don't have time to, to put the leaven in and make it rise. Um, so now we move from that early in chapter 12 and, and them living through that to now he's institutionalizing this, this feast, this seven-day feast, so that other generations, and particularly them as well, when they get to the promised land, they will observe this weekly feast. Uh, the seven-day feast is kind of unique, this unleavened bread feast, because it's supposed to first, let me say it this way, it comes on the heels of the Passover. The Passover was to be observed at twilight, um, which is the starting time for the Jews of their new day, that, that what we call sundown time, when the sun is going down, um, that's when they were supposed to observe it the, on the 14th, uh, Passover. And then on the 15th, boom, we go right into the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So it's actually like an eight-day um, celebration, but two separate ones. Now, in the Bible, sometimes you'll see some of the, particularly the prophets will refer to the Feast of Celebration or Passover, and it can mean both. But for our purposes today, I want to make sure we see that Passover is first, the first day, and then seven days follow after Passover, where we, we are looking at God contextualizing slavery and tying it to leaven, which means sin. The, the ancient Near East, and we see this brought out in, in, in our um, biblical studies, all brought out by, in the Bible as you progress forward. This, this reoccurring theme of leaven and sin. Leaven, or I should, uh, yeah, leaven represents sin. So it looks back first, the Feast of the, of the uh, Unleavened Bread, to what God accomplished. And then it says, hey, let's now look forward. Because of what God has accomplished, this is the life we are to lead. So, so that's what the, the, the hinge pin is of, this, of these truths, back and forward. Okay, so here we, here we go. No leavened bread shall be eaten. No leavened bread shall be eaten. In verse 4. Well, let, me, let me clarify, though. I want to make sure you understand that there's a connection between... Physical slavery of Egypt. They're leaving physical slavery. They can't have any leaven. So he's now talking. They do not, probably don't get it. It's going to take the prophets to continue to build on this. I don't know how much they would have gotten it. But this, this physical slavery is now juxtaposed or pointing to or compared to or pointing at Slavery to sin. 
So he's using a physical thing that took place and using it as a means to create imagery. So they make the jump. They connect that there's a, a, a future picture of the release that they receive through salvation, a spiritual salvation. It's what Christ performed for them by way of they will be released from the slavery to sin. So let's, con- let's continue forward. Verse 4. Today in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when Yahweh brings you into the land of the Canaanites or the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. It's really neat what he does with the Hebrew there. I'm geeking out when I w- watch it. He doesn't say keep. It means keep. But he doesn't use the word Hebrew, the Hebrew word for keep. He says, you shall, um, liter- uh, woodenly, he says, uh, you shall serve this service in this month. You're no longer serving taskmasters to slavery. You are now serving this service. In other words, you're serving me. I, your God, have freed you from that slavery for you to serve me. So he continues on. Verse 6. Seven days you shall, eat, you shall eat unleavened bread. In other words, bread that doesn't have leaven in it. That Again, the leaven representing sin. And on the seventh day there shall be a feast to Yahweh. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread, no sin, in other words, shall be seen with you. And no leaven, no sin, shall be seen with you in all your territory. Remember, they're heading to this land flowing with milk and honey. This land represents the garden. They're heading to a land where, they can, where the garden is being figuratively, and in some sense, divinely recreated in their minds that we're, in the garden there was no sin. You're heading to a land. Do not bring sin into it. Let's continue on. You shall tell. The idea here is to make known through explanation, to instruct, or the word that I played with today, I, I expounded a little bit greater on. You shall catechize. You shall teach. Take time to teach. It's not just declaring as far as, not just saying something and you move on. You're trying to connect truth to it. You shall tell your son on that day. It is because of Yahweh, what Yahweh did for me when I came out of Egypt, and it shall be to you as a sign. The sign is what you were, excuse me, a sign on your hand, what I do in removing the leaven. That's the sign. Don't get stuck on putting something on the hands. That's what the Pharisees did. They created robes that put uh, 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 phylacteries. They were little uh, leather pouches that had, guess what they had? They had these verses in the pouches. They blew it. They took a, something that was supposed to represent remembering, and they turned it into a physical object that put, made them look good in front of the people. They had it on their hands, and they'd walk around with it right here, between their eyes. And, everyone, and they, they, misunderstanding, thought that that made them more holy, more connected to God. They blew it. They missed it. Can't help but think when we take, the, take it, that which is supposed to be understood as representing, representing something bigger. The bigger is what he's doing in salvation. 
We don't need these little leather things on our hands and our, and our forehead between our eyes to, to say we're holy. No, you're missing it completely. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand. In other words, what my hand is doing in the midst of this by removing the sin. I go about and I make sure that I remove the sin. Think about this as the Jews uh, uh, partake in this ceremony still today. Do they get they are removing sin from their house. They are removing, they had to remove sin. I had a, a Jewish friend. You had to look underneath the refrigerator for any crumbs. Everything had to be removed. The impossibility of the removal of sin completely was designed to show them their need for a Savior who could remove the sin. Can you see that their own hands would act as a sign as they're looking? The families partake in this. I would watch my buddy. He'd take the vacuum cleaner and go underneath it. And I'm like, this is really weird. This is part of a religious thing. And I didn't understand it. And now I see the beauty in what God is doing and what it means to have that, the sign on your hand. And then we see that uh, a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes or what you see taking place in this feast, make it cause you to connect the dots that I, the, you, if you will, the breadcrumbs that God is giving between that which he's using as physical slavery and connecting it to spiritual slavery. Think, see, look at what you're observing and make the connections of what God is saying. The, uh, he continues on, the Laha Yahweh, that the Laha Yahweh might be in your mouth for a strong hand, for with a strong hand, Yahweh brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep the statue as it, as it's, or at its, excuse me, appointed time from year to year. Now this is interesting. Yahweh commanded that salvation that he made possible by his mighty hand be memorialized in a week-long feast that emphasized the removal of sin. Now, why a seven-day feast? Why not a three-day? Why not a four-day? Why a seven-day feast? Why a feast that focuses on what they're supposed to do following the Passover? You are saved out of slavery. What are you supposed to do in the seven-week period? You're supposed to remove unholiness, remove leaven. In today's time before you, I want to take the, the, the what I, I, I couldn't come up with a better word. I'll say the negative side of holiness, the negative not meaning that it's bad. It means what you take away in order to have holiness, not what you put in in order to have holiness. God creates a seven-week, excuse me, a seven-day holiday. Think about it. What is the other seven-day rhythm that we as human beings all experience? It's the creation week. It's the seven-day rhythm of our lives. It's in interesting. Employers have tried to change the seven-day week. Uh, different nations have tried to make it different, you know, different uh, means of measuring time. And we can't get away from the week. 
Human beings were created for this rhythm of seven days. It's based on what God had done in the acts of creation in six days, and then on the seventh he rested. But it's a rhythm that's a part of who we are as beings. And so as surely as the seven-day week is the rhythm of human life, so the seven-day feast of the unleavened bread should be the rhythm of our lives moving forward. This removal of sin should be the rhythm of our life. If you were to ask me, Nick, how long am I supposed to go about in this, this constant looking for and removing of sin in my life? I would point you to this and say, the Lord intends this to be your lot until you go home. But you're not to tire from it. Certainly, it can overwhelm us when we give into it because you are not to tire because you have the Holy Spirit. It is He who empowers you. If you are growing weary, it may be that you are walking in your own strength in the removal and the attempt to remove this. I want to give you some idea what holiness does not look like. I mentioned the Pharisees before. They are like the greatest example. I say this playfully and sadly at the same time. They really are the greatest example of what not to do. And do and you, you ever notice that when Jesus gets uh, indignatious, when his anger is righteous, it's always at the Jewish leadership who should know better and probably do at some level know better. And they betray God and they go after this hypocrisy. Listen to Mark 1, and I'll, I'll, just, I'll just reference it to save time. In 1 Corinthians uh, 5.8, we see that it's, it's interesting that it's referred to, Paul uses this as he references leaven. He says that you, we're not to have the, in, in dealing with the, the Pharisees, the malice or hatred and evil. That's what, that's what uh, leaven looks like in the life of a Pharisee, and it's what it can look like in our lives. Or in Mark 16.6 and 12, and then again in 8.15, it can, it, it, Jesus particularly refers to leaven, in our lives, and particularly the uh, lives of the Pharisees, as false doctrines and teachings. What do we still have? I can't, I'll say this often to Pastor Pete. Sometimes my old faith creeps into my life like it's, and I didn't say it at the time, but it's like it's old leaven that I found. I do things and I say, why am I doing that? That's, that's based on my old traditions, my old faith. I can't do that. That's, that's, that's wrong. It's, it's these false doctrines are, are tempted to creep into my life. Well, let's look at what Jesus himself calls hypocritical holiness. And we look, you know, we turn towards Matthew chapter 23, and I'm just going to paraphrase here. This is hypocritical holiness as, as pointed out by Christ in dealing with the, with the uh, Pharisees particularly. They did their acts of God so they could be praised by men. They did their acts so that they could be praised by men. Do we do that? They wanted to be exalted by men instead of pursuing humility. At my level, that would be like me being a celebrity pastor. I want to, I want to, I want to preach so that I become a celebrity, and I'm cool and hip, and everybody wants me to come to your conference. That would be hypocritical. Where do we go about? When, when we engage people in our apologetic conversations, and those conversations where we're trying to demonstrate 
by way of evidence in the Bible that God exists and that God has a plan for the sin that is absolutely overtaken their lives. Do we do it to, to win the argument? That would be unholiness. Do we do it out of love for them or is it love because we know we're right on this one and we walk away smug instead of broken that they didn't get it? Another one that they did, these Pharisees, they neglected the greater laws and listen to these three laws of justice, mercy, and faith while meticulously keeping the, the lesser laws. You know what was important to them? Tithing mint. Mint. You heard me, little plants over mercy and justice and faith. You, you want to keep these laws and yet you, you throw out the greater? Do we understand what mercy and compassion look like? Or have we grown cold and we don't care about those that are hurting? Do we take the time to slow down, to show them compassion? Number four, they look good on the outside. And I'm just reading down the chapter, chapter 23. And just, I'm not cherry picking. I'm just putting down what, what, what the Lord has put in here. They look good on the outside while being filled with greed. They want, they want, they want. And self-indulgence, I want until I can't have any more because I just can't take any more. They look good on the outside, but that's really what they want. Excuse me. They want to look only good. They really are greedy and self-indulgent. And then lastly, they pretend to be righteous while truly being filthy and corrupting in their hearts. Corrupting others. Yikes. Do you realize that yours and my sinfulness, yours and my unwillingness to be holy can corrupt those around us? Particularly when they see us, uh, our example, and they go, well, as a Christian, I guess you can get away with this or that. We have to be careful of that. Listen to... Peter's call for holiness upon his primarily Gentile audience. And I say that because I, I need to give a little caveat. When he talks about fathers here, he's going to be talking about Gentile fathers and not Jewish fathers. So listen to this in 1 Peter 1, 17 and 19. Therefore, preparing your hearts for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed here we go to, to the removing component. This is the, the holiness. This is what I'm focusing on. Certainly holiness has a concept of the positive and being this and being godly and righteous. I'm trying to just put juxtapose the two so you can see the differences, the little small nuances between holiness and devotion in your life. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were in our word today. We hear this over and over in the scriptures. Jesus Christ was ransomed. The idea of ransom is that you pay payment in order to get back. You buy back. It's, it's biblically tied to redemption. It's focusing on cost. So we, we can, let me read that again. Knowing that you were ransomed, you were exchanged, might be a, a, a nice way for us to understand it. Something else paid the price. 
from the future ways inherited from your, from your, and I'm inserting Gentile forefathers. In other words, they were trusting in the gods, all the false gods to redeem them. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And listen how he connects this. Paul wants, or excuse me, Peter wants to make sure we don't miss who is the sacrificial lamb all the way back from the Passover. He makes it clear. But with the precious blood of, of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Perfect. Holy. No sin. That's the sacrifice. That's the sacrifice. That's the standard or the status of the, fa- of the sacrificial lamb. Of, that could only be fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And it was exclusively filled by him. We are redeemed for the purpose of removing sin and becoming holy like our God. Our life is a life of putting off. I want to juxtapose. I want to compare. I want to see you to see the difference between holiness as a putting on, excuse me, putting off, and devotion as a putting on. We put off sin. We remove it from our life now that we're saved, and we put on this devotion. Now let's take a look at what this devotion looks like. So we'll look at verses 1 through 2 and 11 through 16. So in Exodus 13, 1 through 2, we're going to read, all of a sudden, firstborn is going to jump on the page here. And we don't know what to do with firstborn because we are not from the ancient Near East culture. But let's find out what they knew and see how it applies and see if we can't get ourselves up to speed. Yahweh said to Moses, consecrate. The, the word there is kadash. It means, it's a, it, he says it as a command and it means set apart. Take out of this and bring it over here. I want distinction. I want difference. I want complete distinction. Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. That is a statement of possession. And that is important to your understanding and my understanding of the firstborn. The firstborn are no longer their parents. The firstborn are no longer even their own. They are God's. God has purchased them back. They are his. And we continue on in verse 11. When Yahweh brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to Yahweh all that first, excuse me, all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn, and now I want you to see something here, because this, this one drove me nuts this week. And I'm hoping it's going to drive you nuts a little bit because you want to dig in. But there are three things listed here that one of these things is not like the others. And you sit there and you go, why did you group these together like this? Watch this. Watch what he does. Uh, starting verse 12 again. You shall set apart to Yahweh all, the first, all that first opens the womb, all the firstborn of your animals. Okay, got that. That are males shall be Yahweh's. Every firstborn of a donkey. Why are we going to donkey? A donkey is an is a unclean animal. Why is why you pick cherry-picking donkey out of everything else that you could have listed? Remember, this is under the inspiration of God. Every firstborn of, of a donkey you shall redeem or buy back with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. You don't want to redeem the donkey? Then break its neck. Well, that's kind of 
grabs you and go, what is going on? And then it continues on. Every firstborn of man, excuse me, every firstborn of man among your sons, you shall redeem. Now, because of the way this is structured, what's implied is man is also redeemed by a lamb, just like a donkey is redeemed by a lamb. This is hard to put together unless you have ancient Near East background. So, one particular uh, commentator did a phenomenal job, and I, some of the other were pragmatic. This guy hits it theology-wise, and I love that. So listen to this. No sooner had Moses given the instructions for donkeys than he went on to say, Redeem every firstborn of your sons. This comparison is worth reflecting on for a moment. Yeah, I need to know what's going on here. Donkeys were unclean. That was not so much a matter of hygiene as, as of spiritual principle. Excuse me. That was not so much a, a matter of hygiene as of spiritual principle. God had divided the animals between clean and unclean. And we're going to see that in the books to come in the Torah. In order to teach his people how to distinguish between the sacred and the secular, that which is special unto God and that which is common to, to, to man, the holy and the unholy. By setting certain things apart as holy to the Lord, the Israelites learned that they too were set apart for God's services. Oh, we're starting to see that that devotion to God. Set apart, my life is set apart to devotion or service to God. This, this this, this commentator is, tr- is tracking with what God is communicating. But here in Exodus 13, God places his people in the same category as donkeys. They, this showed them that they were sinners in need of salvation. In a word, they needed to be redeemed. Otherwise, they would perish as the donkeys that were not redeemed had their necks broken. I think he's dead on here. I think he has hit it. It is a place of humbling us to realize our need for a Savior. And that's why he cherry-picks that particular animal to point that out to the, to the Hebrews. Verse 14 continues. And when in time you come to, to, excuse me, and when in time to come, your son asks you, this is going to be key, that the son is asking, what does this mean? This is the, the inquiring nature of our children that sometimes exhausts us but is it good and godly? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, Yahweh brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. He's, he's focusing back on that. For when Yahweh stubbornly refused to go, let us go, excuse me, when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, Yahweh killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. I didn't tell you earlier why it was only the firstborn. Today we'll learn why it's the firstborn. Let's continue on. Earlier meaning earlier in Scripture. Therefore I, and I is emphasized here in the Hebrew. Therefore I sacrifice. He's telling his son, I am doing this because of what God has done in saving us out of of the situation that the, the Egyptians went through in death. So son, this is why I am sacrificing do you remember the hand thing we were talking about? The hand, what you do reminds. He is telling his son emphatically, I am doing this as a means of remembering. And thus, you are to do this 
as a means of a remembering. It's amazing how God knows how we're wired. He's the one who wired us. We need this connection to the doing to get it sometimes. Therefore I sacrifice, in other words, slaughter and kill, to Yahweh all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark of, on your hand, in other words, we talked about this before, frontless between your eyes, them seeing this done, but for by a strong hand Yahweh brought us out of Egypt. So let's take a look at some of the explanation of the firstborn. Redeeming the firstborn by Killing an animal helped the Israelites realize the cost. Now, they didn't understand the cost to God at this time, probably, but it came with a significant cost. So by the time there's that connection between Jesus Christ as being the Lamb of God, now things start to speed up, and they start to connect the Old Testament to what the truths are being conveyed in the New Testament truths that were always in the Old Testament, but maybe were difficult to understand. But there's more. There's another significance tied to the firstborn that was unique to the ancient Near East culture, and that significance is that as the firstborn male of the family went, so did the rest of the family. They believed that the firstborn carried the destiny of the family. And it's not, I'm not talking just Hebrews. Many of the ancient Near East cultures believe this. That's the significance of the firstborn and how important he is. Now think about this. Wonder why God only took the lives of the firstborn of the Egyptians? Because he is a merciful God. He could have wiped them all out. But they would get the message. As the firstborn goes, so you go. You are under the judgment as the seed of serpent. Remember, Pharaoh represents Satan's representative on earth. It is the most evil empire on earth at this time. They are the seed or the offspring of, ser of, of the serpent. That's what Egypt represents. So God is saying, as your firstborn go, so you go. He, he, and in doing this, he still doesn't kill everybody so that those that may want to leave in this exodus, in this salvific walk out of slavery, they can walk away from their Egyptian roots if they choose. They can choose salvation if they, if they so choose. What an incredibly merciful God. He uses the ancient Near East custom to bring to bear a point without having to kill everyone. Well, the same is true in that he also saved the life of the firstborn males of the Israelites. The same message is carried forth. As the firstborn goes, so is the destiny of those that are part of the family, that, that, that are the saved family is the picture. They also were destined, and they knew it because it was a physical salvation. They were, they were leaving Egypt. They were being removed from the bondage of slavery. But it pointed to a salvation that was spiritual, us leaving the bondage of sin, us leaving death behind and entering into eternal life. Listen to this. I hope this helps you. I'd never seen this before. I understand that Jesus Christ as the firstborn, there's other components within the ancient Near East culture that point to him as being the preeminent. The firstborn had a different standing. 
So when we read firstborn and it's connected to Jesus, we understand that Jesus Christ is preeminent. He is above, uh, distinguished above all, set apart. And that's the picture. That's a given. But I never realized this ancient Near East understanding of, of it on this passage. Let me read to you Romans 8, 28 to 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. We love this verse, especially when we're suffering. This is an important verse. For those who are called according to his purposes. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, made holy like his son, is another way of saying it. But let's continue on. We haven't gotten to the, the point I'm trying to make. In order that we might be the firstborn among brothers. As Jesus' destiny went, so too we go. He died to sin. We, when we, that's the picture of baptism is us sharing in the death of sin. We go under the water. We cannot breathe under the water. We are pictured as being under the curse, and we rise up new creations in Christ Jesus, alive and breathing. In some sense, we have experienced the death that Jesus experienced. We are raised up. We are, we experience, let me say it better this way. We experience resurrected lives, lives made new, eternal lives that can't be taken from us in a spiritual sense. As the firstborn goes, so go the people of God. What a beautiful, beautiful picture. We are the many brothers and sisters who share in Jesus' firstborn destiny of salvation. Thirdly, and I'll move quickly to this point, because of the ransom provided by God in order to save the firstborn, all the firstborn became him. There's a component of, pos- of possession that confuses us. Aren't we kind of like all gods already? We're made in his image. What are we doing with possession here? You've got to go back to what they understood in the ancient Near East. He purchased them with the blood of the lamb. That's what he's trying to convey in redemption as purchase. Yes, there's a component of atonement. We talked about that previously. But this is the idea of purchase by blood, of by sacrifice, by a means of exchange. This life for that life. And so he's, he's emphasizing this. Listen to this. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, Paul, the incredible theologian that he was as a Pharisee of Pharisees. Remember the hypocrites that got it all wrong? That Jesus put down when we looked at, at holiness? This is Paul, the now changed Pharisee, that in all of what he was getting wrong, if you will, he's connecting dots by way of the inspiration by God. He says this in writing to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. In other words, you were redeemed with a price. In other, and so he says, and here's the so, what do you do with your life? You glorify God in your body. Okay, we're starting to get to the, the understanding of devoting or devotion to God. It has something to do with the totality of our lives. Listen to Titus 2, 11 through 14. It says this, Titus 2, 11 to 14. For the grace of God, in other words, the unmerited favor of God, has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Training us, now this is the putting off, 
thinking about this, remember I, I tried to contextualize it for us, holiness is seen as putting off, training us to renounce ungodliness, we're putting off ungodliness, and worldly passions, we want that off, and now we're gonna, he's gonna, Paul is going to talk about the putting on, um, the, the putting on of godly character and deeds, he's going to work with both, to live to live lives self, uh, excuse me, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of, of the glory of our great God and Savior, who gave Himself. You hear that? Do you hear the price? He He knows. He knew. We saw this in His prayer that that was the will of God, and He willfully gave Himself as payment for us. I'm continuing on with the passage. For us to redeem us from, from, the, from all lawlessness, that's sinfulness, ah, tied back to the unleavened bread, removing the sinfulness, and to purify, that's bringing about holiness, we're doing that purification by removing, we're being purified, and to purify for himself, and listen to what Paul gets. And you go, and I, you may have read this before and go, what the heck is he talking about? To purify for himself a people of his own possession. We are God's possession. We are the people that the firstborn represent. In that sense, we are the firstborn. We are the beloved by God. Listen to this. For himself, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Our devotion to God our thanksgiving for what he has done in salvation and passing us over and not having the death occur to us that happened to the firstborn, but being saved by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ himself, that is what drives us, motivates us to live lives that are zealous for good works. Not just putting off the bad works but putting and the, and the wrong heart, but putting on good works. That's devotion. Let us be convicted of that. Let us be reminded of that. It's a beautiful picture. Our takeaway again, as, as I remind us before we close, is let us never forget the cost or the purpose of our redemption. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you that you've explained it. I wouldn't get it unless you explained it. You make it clear. You continue to reveal more and more. You put these people in our path that you have inspired through the person of your Holy Spirit, and they explain it to us so we can see it and we rejoice. Our purpose is holiness. Our purpose is a a life devoted to you. Teach us. Guide us by the person and the power and the grace of the Holy Spirit in this endeavor for your glory and for our good. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.